Well, hi everybody. Welcome. This is Toby Miller. Hello to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm here at Zeta House in Clerkenwell with my new friend, Sarah Cooper. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. And how would you describe where we are? There's a, what appears to be a stuffed kangaroo over there with boxing gloves on. There are lots of really extraordinarily kitschy sort of 19th century English gentleman's club gaming items here. What are, where are we? It's quirky, it's stylish. We're in the East End of London, so what do you expect, basically? Right, right. And we're here together to have a drink and to enjoy our rather frigid Sunday night, but also to talk a bit about your work. So perhaps you could tell us what you're doing now. And I know a lot of what you're doing now is being uh, in a bewildering, seemed when I spoke to you last, like a bewildering array of administrative positions. So let's get those out of the way and we can talk about the other stuff. Yeah. So you're at King's. And I should say that pe- people listen to this in 50 different countries every week okay. so it's good to tell them what King's might mean <laughs> okay King's College London on the Strand um, on the Strand no less yeah. um, and I'm head of film studies there um, and currently also um, deputy head of the School of Arts and Humanities which has um, I think 16 departments and programmes in it currently um, so is a, a vast um, uh, facet of um, the educational structure of King's basically and film is um, a small department within that school um, but we've been expanding over the past um, few years um, and we currently have 14 members of staff um, with a couple of half-time staff within that number um, and we've doubled literally over the past three years so we're a wow. department in rapid expansion both in terms of staff and students um, and Staff means like faculty as opposed absolutely. to administrators. Yeah, absolutely. In, uh, so UK. teaching staff, full-time teaching yeah, staff yeah. and some part-time teaching and staff. Is humanities a specialised thing of King? Is it what it's known for? In it has a very strong reputation for humanities um, and these, it used, this school that um, uh, film studies belongs to used to be called the School of Humanities but they changed that um, several years ago now to uh, recognise formally the fact that you've not only got the humanities there but you've also got the arts there um, and that marginal distinction um, just makes the difference in terms of um, I guess the way in which film studies is recognised along with um, music um, along with the creative arts um, alongside the more traditional um, humanities subjects that's interesting. And do you have much intercourse between these areas? Do media production people or cultural production people connect with what might be called studies or history or criticism or theory? Yeah, they do. Um, there are separate departments. So you've got um, a history department, for example, and then obviously our department, um, uh, French, German, the modern languages, etc. And there's a lot of um, interdisciplinary activity between the different departments. But also, uh, within the departments themselves, many of the subjects would classify themselves as interdisciplinary. So um, there would be historical interests, obviously, within film studies, um, within French, um, that would also dovetail with some of what the historians within the history department um, work on. So, yeah, lots.
lots of intersections, lots of interplay between the different departments and programs, basically. An interesting point that comes out of that, I suppose, you mentioned, I think, 14 faculty members. How many of those people have a, an undergrad degree and or a PhD in a department called film or media or communications or... Very few. Whatever. In fact, yeah. possibly none, actually, because we're <laughs> all of a slightly older generation from when um, the Film Studies BA programmes actually came into being. Um, and equally, we're a very international department, so um, many of the colleagues who are part of it um, have come from um, countries where um, Structures were different, and um, the, the ways into film studies were really quite diverse. Um, that, that kind of speaks for me and speaks for a lot of my colleagues. I think we did arts and humanities subjects, um, and then um, moved into film subsequently, having done uh, an initial undergraduate degree, um, and then, uh, well, in my case, gone into it at master's level, um, and then um, kind of developed forwards from that. Um, not as a standard PhD subject in my case, um, but um, uh, an interest in it that um, became stronger as I got closer to. Why, why don't we a focus job. on you? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, why don't we focus on you then? Given all of that, tell us about what you did for undergrad. I did um, French and German at um, Cambridge. Um, it was uh, a modern and medieval languages faculty, um, and having studied A-levels at school in French and German and liked them, I just wanted to pursue what I'd already done. Um, there was a language programme um, in the modern and medieval languages faculty that permitted you to do languages ab initio, so there were various that you could study at that time, I think Italian and Spanish. Um, could take from scratch, but I preferred to do the subjects that I'd already um, qualified in at A-level um, and uh, took those all the way through. Um, you had to, it's got there's a tripod system at Cambridge which is unique to it in that you can complete various facets of your degree as you move through so the first year was part one and then there was a, um, a part 1b and then in the fourth year you did part two um, and I did the bulk of the first two years on both subjects so kept them both going kept both languages going did literature theory in French and German but as I moved forward um, in the degree program by the time I got to my fourth year I was more of a specialist in French um, and had spent the year in Alsace I already told you so yeah. um, trying to uh, or chose it because of the possibilities of having contact with both languages but ended up doing more French speaking more French so gradually moving more and more towards um, French studies um, French language did all of my um, final year language papers in French um, still did um, a literature paper in German um, which was 20th century German alongside 20th century French literature um, and so kept a tiny strand of my German going all the way through but the rest of the bulk of it was, was French studies When I spoke to you before about this you were very modest about your German oh, It's terrible That might be one reason for being modest I have, I have um, uh, the possibility I, I can still read it so I've got um, a, a level of comprehension and um, ability in it to be able to read um, and probably I'm sure if I went there and <laughs> 
uh, re-immerse myself in the culture than I could um, speak it again. But it's certainly it's fallen by the wayside and I've allowed it to, but um, I've still got that um, comprehension of uh, the written language. It's just very useful actually for the work that I've done on, on film theory and being able to read certain texts um, that haven't been translated um, in the original. Yeah, sure. And um, speaking of reading film theory, when you did your tripos in the Franco-German Entente not very cordiale, as it were, did you read, were you taught literary and cultural and social theory in and of those languages, or were you reading dead white European men who wrote fiction and poetry as opposed to dead white European men or living white European feminists who wrote theoretically? Um, or is this, a, is this a stupid as well as very long question? No, it's not a stupid question. <laughs> um, uh, I read um, quite a bit of theory um, from the outset. There was, it was a, a literary, it was more of a language degree in the first year. So um, there was 75% language in French and German. Right. Um, and you had a, a, a small fraction of that devoted to literature in both of the languages. Um, so, there, and there was a set paper that you did um, in French, and it was 19th century French literature that I did. You had a choice between 18th century or 19th, I went. 19. Um, and the German went from um, Lessing um, through to um, I can't remember what now actually I think Goethe and so it was it was a study of the classics really from um, uh, centuries past um, and after that it wasn't until I got to my second year that I started to um, have what well, we started to have a bit more of a choice um, and I went towards the um, modern papers in the 20th century contemporary um, papers um, and um, alongside various of the literature papers that they were offering at the time there was a critical theory paper um, oh, and this okay. was cutting edge at the time um, and the various professors that were there or various um, faculty that were there were um, really working I think in a way that was quite at the vanguard of, of thinking even though a lot of the texts that we were studying had been out for years by that point and there was kind of groundbreaking work of the 60s that was being taught as critical theory and the 70s as well um, and this was obviously in the 90s so a bit of a time lag but certainly um, the post-structure theory that um, was um, coming to the um, fore was something that um, scholars in Cambridge in the faculty had really grasped and um, were, were passing on to. Yes, please, yes. what would you like? Sarah, um, can you think of something? Yeah, could I have a glass of red wine, please? Red wine? Is yeah. it half red? Or? Uh, let me show you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Sorry. Um, Do you have a tempranillo? Sorry? Do you have a tempranillo? Or Rioja? I'm being difficult. But I'm buying you time as you make your way through the menu by making specific, apparently very demanding requests that are leading our host to consult with the higher authority. Oh, okay. oh great, okay. These are they, yeah. Oh, okay, thank you.
Yes, my glasses. They're over here. Listeners, thank you for your kind indulgence as the old boy puts his 20 buck CVS specials on. The better to know what he's ordering. There is a Spanish red wine, if that's what you're after. It's not a real Yes. Now, what have you got your eye on? You're looking for red. Yeah. We could get a... I'm quite happy to have whatever red you'd like, and we could get a giraffe of it. Let's have a giraffe. Do you want to share a giraffe? Yeah. Which one would you like? Um. You could have... You could go... We could start at the bottom price-wise with, you know, vines of the church. Um, and go on forward to the, you know, lovely climate of California. Oh, the Flying Cigar of California. It's only a bottle for £91, so perhaps the Flying Cigar okay. is not going to take off tonight. No, um, should we go for the, the French? The Vin de l'Église? Yeah. Vigne de l'Église, yeah. yeah. Very good, all right. I guess that is the church. Church yeah, vines. Yeah, yeah. vines at the church. Very good. Um, all right, so. Uh, where we're up to now. Well, you're reading, and, I don't know, Habermas yeah. and Nietzsche or something. Well, we were reading, um, the, I mean, it's a tremendous time to be there actually because mm -hmm. there were some um, really amazing teachers there. And there was um, Marianne Janeret, Elizabeth Wright, um, Naomi Siegel all taught me in there. So, we're thinking, sorry, keep going. Okay. A bottle, you get a bottle. A bottle. Yeah. Thank you. They were um, three um, amazing women scholars who were really interested in critical theory at the time yes. and who um, kind of inspired me in what they uh, were, were interested in. Um, and alongside them, there were um, figures Michael Moriarty, um, Peter Collier, who uh, really, I guess, pioneered the teaching of, of critical theory from the kind of base of the French department in Cambridge. Um, and it, was, it wasn't it was Nietzsche Habermas, it was um, more, um, I guess, a, a route that I still kind of follow today when I teach theory um, from structuralism through post-structuralism, um, from Saussurean-inspired um, linguistic um, approaches to literature um, through deconstructive um, approaches to that um, uh, a theoretical um, paradigm and then um, openings outwards from that um, through feminism, through um, the various identity-based theories um, uh, into um, uh, queer theory, um, post-colonial theory. Um, I mean, there was a massive range of things that we were taught at the time. Um, uh, through also through the work of uh, writers who didn't quite fit the kind of um, uh, convention. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay. Smell something. Why don't you have a taste? It's nice, actually. Yeah. Do you want to try to have a yeah, bottle we, of that? Yeah, we'll have, bottle, we'll have the bottle of Marie Cante instead of the Vigny. 
Oh, this is fun, isn't it? So, yeah, and also, you order something and they say, you wanted something from another country, and something from that country, yeah, you won't try it. Already you give in. The you give in. <laughs> we could have said, well, we'd like to try the French one too, but no. No, but they, they persevered and they found the Spanish, so there you But go. they found the weakness but in both of us. <laughs> Which Desire was? to please. <laughs> The wish to fit in. Yes. Right, Sorry, right. the strength. The mutual strength. The strength we share. The quality. The quality. Please. It's the quality. The quality of, of us. Between us and in the bond. In any event, so, you're, you're learning and you then go on later to teach. If you like, the beginnings of linguistic structuralism a century ago, a century ago this year that the old boy died, uh, Saussure, I guess, 1913, uh, through to... Uh, the moment of uh, its coronation in the human sciences with oh, Levi Strauss, and then at the moment of its high coronation, uh, it's thank you very much. It's assault. Great, thank you. It's assault by Derrida, and, uh, and then of course the, the ways in which these strands are picked up, developed, challenged, and so on along the way by uh, scholars who are concerned about the. Failure to account for issues of gender, sexuality, and history. Thank, thank you very much. Well, let's drink to all of that. Cheers, yeah. Yes, cheers. Well done, Cambridge, catching up. Well, you know, just in time for you to come along. Well, yeah, it probably was catch up. I don't know what was going on elsewhere at that particular moment. Um, but, but, um, but, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, as we've discussed before, it was the, in the English department in Cambridge at the time and the French department in Cambridge at the time that the real uh, interest in critical theory yes. uh, was, was located. And the philosophy department wasn't the place that continental These philosophy These things happen. Was. Well, this, I guess, is 10 years after, thank you very much, the, uh, the, the sacking of the cave. In the structuralist controversy of the early 80s. Yeah. And it was also the time when um, Derrida was um, put forward for an honorary degree, and it was very much through the, um, uh, the French and the um, English side of things that um, his, his uh, kind of the nomination was, was supported, I think. So, um, but yeah, so interesting times theoretically, I guess. Probably slightly later than some institutions, but then uh, it was still um, kind of pioneering in what it did with it, I think. And the figures who were there were uh, inspirational, not only obviously to my generation, but yes. others. And the, but the analytic philosophers would have none of it. Yes, exactly. Um, and I mean, not that I had much contact with philosophy at the time, but it was certainly that if you wanted to, or if you were interested in this area of um, theory, you were. You, you would go there, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's changed since. And I certainly had colleagues at um, Trinity Hall when I taught there, um, a colleague who was a junior research fellow who was very interested in uh, continental philosophical um, uh, works and um, was uh, interested in feminist philosophy as well. And um, uh, that, so things moved forwards, but I think it still is the case that it was from, from within English departments and modern language departments that a lot of the material was taught and it does make sense in terms of the, um, uh, the linguistic 
basis of a lot of the material that you had to read and needed that kind of um, that background in a sense to read things in the original, even though um, obviously these were widely translated um, and have, have been since and yeah. circulated. No, it's the same in the States, you know, uh, the, the coronation of Levi Strauss in 66, the intervention at Hopkins, the intervention by Derrida <laughs> against it. Uh, was all occurring in French and English and comparative literature departments, in anthropology departments as well, it wasn't occurring in uh, philosophy other than in some bits of communication studies which philosophers would not have regarded and do not regard as philosophy. So, yeah, it's the same story, just in another time period. But I think that that's still the case in those places, in all these places, really. The impact of so-called continental philosophy on the Anglo-American analytic type seems to be minimal. <laughs> not like tell. Yeah. Yeah. No, but anyway, so but yeah. you emerge, you take flight from Cambridge and these wonderful mentors who sound amazing. And where do you land? Where does your where do your wings take you? I yeah, I didn't take flight very far actually because I, I carried onwards um, through um, <laughs> the structures in Cambridge for several years. Um, but once I'd done my doctorate, I um, had my first job in Cambridge and um, taught. Um, within the French department there, um, I had what was known as a college lectureship at Trinity Hall. Um, what, sorry? At Trinity Hall. At Trinity um, Hall. And so just moved from where I studied as an undergraduate and a postgraduate um, from Corpus Christi to Trinity Hall. And um, when I moved there, I was teaching French principally um, and a range of um, papers um, related to 19th century French literature. 20th century French literature, modern critical theory, um, so the paper that I liked the most. Um, a wonderful paper called 19th century uh, literature and visual arts, um, which I don't know if that's still taught actually, but it was one of my favourites when I was an undergraduate and I then taught it when I was um, a lecturer. And also some language um, papers, so I had quite a wide range of oh, teaching responsibilities, which was wonderful. And the students were amazing, um, but the bulk of the work that I was doing um, was um, very small group teaching, um, uh, supervisions, um, and um, kind of given that I was spread um, across a range of papers, and suddenly started to become more and more interested in in film through the theoretical route that I'd followed, um, and what I was increasingly being asked to teach and to supervise. Um, both at MA level and at PhD level, um, I uh, just became more and more interested and wanted to specialise further and further. So um, was already looking um, to see how I might do that. Um, and um, the post at King's came up um, and I applied for it and got it. And that was, uh, I guess, the, the 
I mean, it was the, the perfect response, really, to what I was looking for at the time, which was to be able to um, specialise in film through the roots of theory. It was um, a lectureship in film aesthetics um, uh, and uh, film theory. Um, and it was essentially, it had arisen because David Roderick, who set up the programme there, um, was moving to Harvard, and it was to fill his, his area of um, teaching, basically, which was the film theory papers that he'd set up there and modules the courses. Um, so, um, yeah, it was it was kind of the perfect thing at the perfect time, basically, and it came up, it came off, and it worked out. Um, and then the rest is history. So I took flights from Cambridge, landed in London, and have stayed here. But um, the dissertation itself, PhD, what was that called? Can you remember what it was called? Yes. I, I wonder how many people can actually remember the title of this. Well, I, I used the title of the thesis for the title of my first book, so right. it's quite a cheat. So I kind of have had, been writing and rewriting it on various kind of applications ever since. But it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> one way of remembering it. Um, but relating to queer theory is what it was called, and it was um, and the subtitle was rereading. So it's kind of not exactly catchy, but rereading sexual self-definition with Irigaray, Wittig, Kristeva and um, and it was all about um, the encounter between feminism and queer theory at a particular historical moment in the early 90s, very much based on my encounter with it as um, a student in the first instance and then um, as a scholar who wanted to, to, to work on it further, to research into it further and to teach it. Monique Fittig, not a name one sees as much anymore. No, exactly. Um, I don't think she was ever really... Um, uh, uh, taken up in the same way that the other theorists were. Actually. Yeah. She was, she was uh, radical in so many different ways. Um, I thought I was really interested in her um, style of writing and the innovations of her literary style. Um, and I think it could well be. be I mean. Uh, yeah, it could well be because there was, uh, I guess, more literary activity um, at a particular moment in her career than there was what could be classified and brought in under the auspices of what theory was at that time. So, where, and Sixu is similar in the sense that she is better known as a, a writer of fiction, I think, in the, the grander uh, kind of um, French um, scheme of things. But um, certainly, as she was known in um, kind of faculties um, at the time, it was through the 75 famous essay, The Laughter of the Medusa. And so, where those figures related to kind of a theoretical um, area, I guess, they, they were known, they were embraced. Um, it was Chris Dover and Dirigaray who had that more uh, uh, kind of theoretical leaning, philosophical leaning um, within their work from the outset. Um, but the, the, the Sixu and Vitic, I guess, were more bound up with the literary, fictional, poetic side of uh, what, what, questioning what theory could be, what it could mean, how it could exist through performance, mm -hmm. I guess. And, Thank you um, very much. And, and yeah, that is certainly not someone who is known outside of um, uh, certain areas today in a way that Chris Davis is, for example. Mm. And so, when does the book come out? 2000. Um, and, and is it the same title, or the whole of the same title as the PhD? It is, although um, it's, yeah, well, the title itself is relating to queer theory. Right. So, it was, um, so it's, it's, but the subtitle. 
is still there. It's still there. So Relating to Queer Theory comes out 2000, and who publishes that? That was um, Peter Lang, um, and I went with them because um, uh, Peter Collier, um, one of the people who'd um, taught um, film theory when I was um, an undergraduate, um, had recently set up um, a modern French identity series with um, uh, Peter Lang, um, and um, the various um, uh, figures who'd supervised me, and I had an amazing supervisor, like Emma Wilson, um, had all, um, uh, I, or many of them actually, I'm going to say all of them, uh, many of them had gone to Oxford Clarendon Press um, after they had completed their theses and worked on turning their theses into books. Um, and I think that um, the OUP um, openness to publishing uh, French monographs at the time um, was um, slightly less um, prolific and um, there was a, a period and this kind of spoke for the emergence of another publishing outlet that um, came uh, several years later that I also worked with. Um, there were moves from within the French studies community to try to create series um, that scholars within French studies would want to publish with and it was a kind of way of um, for a period, certainly, of uh, really um, harnessing what they felt was uh, the, uh, in that sense, the kind of um, uh, 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 immodest, but um, what they felt was worth publishing, basically, within um, the, the community at the time and trying to encourage a publishing route when publishers were looking away, say, from publishing um, uh, certain kinds of books. Um, and so um, Peter Collier and then later figures like Michael Moriarty um, and uh, Malcolm Bowie, very strong figures within French studies, um, looked towards setting up series um, with, with these um, uh, different publishers to, mm -hmm. to encourage people to uh, 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 still put forward books and publication. And so Peter um, came to me and said, would I be interested in putting a proposal for the series? And I did, um, and it was exciting. So, so tell us about the book in terms of relating to queer theory, not so much the authors that you engage, but the general ethos of the book, as it were. The ethos of the book um, was um, really, um, I mean, again, bound up with a particular moment that has possibly passed now. But what I was interested in very much was um, the identification between um, uh, the, the sexual self-definition, the way in which theorists chose to define their sexuality, and the kind of theoretical work that they were most invested in, the kind of theoretical work that they did, um, and the simplest. Um, kind of reflection of that was um, the fact that um, most of the prominent queer theorists that I was most inspired by and um, most interested in thinking of Butler, Sedgwick, um, uh, Bersani, um, uh, Delorete, uh, Tyler, all of the figures who were uh, really uh, uh, strong at that moment, there were loads more, um, uh, defined themselves as lesbian, gay, queer, um, and it was really asking how someone who 
didn't define themselves such, didn't um, claim the same sexual um, self-definition, um, could relate to a, an area that um, in um, so many ways was um, defined and arose precisely because it had a certain um, uh, kind of basis in, in, in experience, I guess. Um, and it was kind of questioning those alignments and asking how one might relate ethically to a field that actually um, you couldn't be included in on that basis of experience or claiming the same sense of sexual self-definition, but that still um, you were inspired by, that you read, that you um, kind of were um, uh, very much felt. Although two of the authors you've mentioned are or were women married to men. But that's uh, kind of part of the definition of queer that I think yeah. is so fascinating. But certainly. you felt as though you couldn't, you just couldn't define yourself as queer in this purpose, or you could? I probably could have done, but I didn't. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd, certainly because of the models that, um, were, or not models, that's silly thing to say, but um, certainly uh, someone like Cedric, the way that she defined herself um, as uh, identified with uh, gay male sexual practices, for example, and um, that's kind of wouldn't identify her as straight even though yeah she uh, in so many different ways of yes. in so many ways of defining oneself as straight you could yeah. so uh, there there were ways in which the queerness of sexuality was bound up with um, her sense of self, sexual self-definition which um, I found fascinating but um, kind of still not um, and rightly so not open to um, Sort of, uh, other definitions of, of straight. So I think, um, I mean, the way that, I mean, what I was interested in was how one could um, uh, be formed as a queer theorist through the texts that one reads, how uh, one could become a queer reader through the texts that one reads. And while, um, and the, the uh, inspirational supervisor that I had, Emma Wilson, had done work on this in a fictional context, so had worked on uh, figures in French um, uh, literature, um, Marcel Proust, uh, Michel Tournier, uh, Marguerite Duras, um, Hélène Sixou, again, as the author, in whose interest, we, or we, we both shared an interest in their work. Um, uh, her interests were in how um, kind of readers are formed by the text that they read, that reading is a performative activity, um, and um, I was inspired by that, but my question related to not how you kind of were bound up in webs of identification and desire through literary engagements that you had, which are kind of um, palpable, I think, when, in, when you read a, a novel and you're kind of uh, really immersed or, or um, I don't know, taken away by um, or certainly affected and that would be how you would articulate that um, uh, relation. How and indeed if that kind of model of identification and desire could ever map onto fiction, to, to theoretical texts. Um, and so it was how you um, transposed those ways in which readers um, bond with texts, are informed by texts, identify with texts, um, enter into desiring relations with texts, um, uh, not through, you know, sort of the, the, the whole um, um, 
way in which characters, you relate to characters, say for example, or subject positions that are uh, in fictional text, but how you might transpose that into a theoretical um, domain. Um, and so that, that was the, the crux of the question that I was asking. Um, and rather than it just being me relating to um, queer theoretical text, it was how one could, um, I guess, think through the ways in which a lot of the writings of the French feminist theorists that I was interested in were already exploring the kind of breakdown of identity, the kind of fluidity of identity that was proto-queer, that was absolutely part of what the queer theorists were talking about, um, but there, there wasn't necessarily a, a dialogue that was going on um, in a very thoroughgoing sense between those two areas at the time. Um, certainly in Butler's work there was a really strong engagement with Chris Daver, with, with Irigaray, um, importantly so, but beyond that the, 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 it wasn't a two-way process and certainly the French theorists weren't engaged with the North American theorists at all. And, that's changing now, very interestingly, with uh, work by figures like Hector Colias at, at King's, who's looking at queer within Fran a French context, which I think is fascinating. But uh, at the time, there was certainly not that kind of um, uh, dialogue that was going in the opposite direction. Um, and so all of that was part of what I was interested in opening up um, in relation to my own response, but also um, how one might articulate um, or open up relations to um, queer theory through a feminist access and access and through um, the ways in which one could um, I guess open up these questions of identification and desire uh, from the literary into the theoretical um, field and so it was effectively a reader theory that I was putting together um, but at the heart right from the outset was a sense of sensitivity I guess to um, the way in which the boundaries around certain fields are constructed, the way in which experience is important, the way in which um, I guess uh, uh, it's important to, uh, I don't know, this was a, a bone of contention at the time and still is I guess, just how expansive the um, definition of any sexuality can be before it loses any sense of definition. And, um, yeah, even though I didn't claim a queer identity, um, plenty of uh, the figures that I was working on did. Um, and there was debate around their very claiming of that identity at the time um, as to how inclusive queer So it was, I guess it was a... Uh, it was a study of boundaries, it was a study of how you cross those boundaries ethically, how you uh, relate to an area um, uh, without just saying anyone can do anything, thank you very much, and I'll just classify myself as a queer theorist and have done with it. And I think, um, uh, I mean, certainly since, and certainly working in film studies, I know there's an absolute sense of ease with which um, theorists of all different um, uh, you know, sort of identities engage with um, different theoretical areas. And, uh, you know, there's, there's you know, no problems raised with that. Well, so these things uh, become normalised exactly, exactly. and they become so, machinic. Yeah, exactly. Required to learn them. And they no longer may have the epistemological rupturing effect of the past, but the quid pro quo is everybody treats them with a certain respect. Exactly. No? When I say everyone, I don't, I mean, obviously, those who work within a tiny world yeah, that exactly. we occupy. Yeah. But when you said that you felt as though some of this moment had passed, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think, 
I think for precisely the reason that you've just um, put forward. And also, um, I don't know, that, I mean, when we spoke before about um, kind of the various um, debates that were cognate with that parallel to it, but not the same as it, um, and that's kind of by the way you start to make really uh, kind of ahistorical structural parallels which um, aren't appropriate, but um, the kind of men in feminism debate, um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't think, uh, as with the you know, straight and queer theory debate such as it is, such as I'm categorising it, that I don't think that those things have passed in the sense that it's... Um, no longer an issue to be taken on board um, where you position yourself, how you position yourself, whether you need to, what the stakes are in the process and in whose name, at whose expense you're speaking and you know all the, those kinds of sensitivities are still there but I, I think very much as I've said with regard to say uh, my move into film and my sense of what queer and film and, um, and not that I work on that now incidentally but the way in which I know scholars do I, yeah, I don't I don't see or hear anyone asking the question that I was asking, you know, twelve in years ago. Exactly. And the so the main feminism reference, by the way, is to a book uh, from Matthew and in 1987, edited by Jardine and Smith. This was something that Sarah and I were discussing the last time that we were together. It was a groundbreaking book that came out of the Modern Language Association in the mid-80s in the United States, where this was considered an urgent matter. And it is a very good book, actually, albeit of its time. It has a great piece by Derrida, in fact. In but in any event, yes, okay. So after that, what happens to you? Well, what do you make happen after your your book emerges in 2000? Yeah. But you move on to do some slightly different things. I do. With your research, don't you? I had um, after. <laughs> I was the door, by the way. Um, after <laughs> a fantastic noise just came from behind the bar, listeners. We hope you are with us and enjoying. <laughs> Um, after that, I had um, an idea for um, a very big project, um, which uh, was clearly over-ambitious, and um, I sent it off to publishers, and there were, um, Stanford was the one who was most interested in it, actually, but um, they, they didn't take it in the end. Um, and what I was interested in doing is pursuing that... Um, trajectory that I'd um, started off with in relating to queer theory which was to do with um, uh, kind of um, the ethical side of uh, relating to um, theoretical texts um, and I was interested in the kind of theory non-fiction axis and because I had by then got a teaching post in Cambridge and part of the remit of that post was to teach film I uh, was um, interested predominantly in how the kind of interest in non-fiction um, in the literary terrain and in my kind of 
background in theory could translate into film and it was principally through an interesting documentary that that came to light. So the idea that I had for the first uh, kind of major book project that I wanted to do after the thesis, after the book, the first book was um, uh, an ethics of relating to non-fiction and it was meant to span documentary and theory um, and to ask the kind of question that I was opening up through an engagement with um, what was prominent at the time actually within um, uh, scholarship on theory which was to do with uh, reader uh, or spectatorship and oh, not spectatorship reader relations not reader response theory um, and that was absolutely prominently bound up with um, identification desire the psychoanalytic theory of that uh, Laplanche and Pontalis um, uh, through Lacan and how one might um, and I was interested in that um, not within the fictional terrain as I said in the theory terrain and then how that might transpose to thinking about relations to documentary films and whether that would so that was the big project that I sent out and that didn't have any takers um, and even though um, I mean I, I pursued a strand of that but um, I narrowed it down I made it very specific to French film because I was in a French department at the time I'd kind of got a bit off more that I, than I could chew in terms of the kind of ethics of relating to non-fiction and kind of the way that it was going to take on uh, so many different documentaries so many different theories um, and um, I narrowed it down to documentary um, in France um, narrowed it down to um, a range of uh, those who were on the cusp of documentary and um, fiction filmmaking um, and also at the time became really, really interested in making the kind of interest in um, ethics something slightly more um, of prominence. Um, and I, um, and as I told you, um, I, when I was doing my thesis, um, uh, I spent a year in Paris um, and I attended the seminars of Derrida and Irigaray at the CNRS. Um, Slight num difference in the numbers of people attending, you told me. Yes, plus. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Irigaray preceded uh, Derrida and Irigaray had a very modest number of uh, devoted followers and then uh, after the changeover of uh, classes came, um, there was literally... Uh, uh, a horde which surprises me because I can tell you which one I would have been coming to listen to well, yeah, well, uh, yeah exactly and I was equally devoted to both but um, the, but uh, when um, I, mean, I was really inspired by Derrida's style of uh, taking his seminar and at the time he was working on hospitality in Levinas um, and he coined a neologism Ostipitality which is the relation between hostility and hospitality and um, uh, he was working this through in relation to French politics, questions of immigration um, at the time, but absolutely through uh, uh, a kind of very close reading of Levinas's text. And when I came to the seminar, it, 
he was looking at a very focused section of uh, Totality and Infinity, the groundbreaking work that was published in 1961, um, and was doing a, a very complex um, textual uh, exegesis of that work, basically, and was doing it in very piecemeal fashion. Um, and um, I found it spellbinding. And also, I hadn't really come across Levinas before, so um, I was very interested in uh, his work through Derrida. Um, I was doing the thesis. I absolutely wanted to bring Levinas in, but I had a very um, astute supervisor who said, no, let's save that for later. And I didn't kind of consciously think, um, uh, OK, I will write on Levinas later. But then, given that I'd had this interest in ethical relations to others through relating to queer theory, um, I'd also had this bigger project in mind, which was going to be about the ethics of relating to non-fiction, documentary and theory. Um, I took that forward um, with a reduced project on documentary that kind of spanned the fiction, non-fiction boundaries, that asked the questions about identification and desire that I wanted to. But I wanted something more than that, more substantial with ethics in mind, and it really was a moment that so many different people were looking to Levinas, but I also harked back to what inspired me when I was doing my doctorate that I didn't look at. Um, was also inspired by the work of Colin Davis, who'd done a book with Polity Press on uh, uh, Levinas at the time. Um, and um, all of that came together in terms of where I looked to get my uh, kind of inspiration for ethics. And although uh, there were so many different ways of approaching ethics, and I know Levinas isn't the only figure, um, but I really was taken with um, the very things that people find problematic in his work. Not that, I mean, that there is it's quite a lot that obviously needs to be worked through, and I wouldn't say I was absolutely embracing him in his entirety without a critical kind of engagement, but in terms of the way that um, he uh, really uh, makes you question the kind of reflective model that I saw at work within psychoanalysis, not just the kind of obviousness of the mirror inspiration that comes through into film theory, but just the sense in which um, uh, it, he made me question whether you do see others, you do see likenesses everywhere you look, um, and what it might mean not to see the face of the other in everything that you um, uh, do um, as an exact replica of your own. So it was this uh, the centrality of the face in his work that fascinated me, the fact that that's non-phenomenological, the fact that that isn't something that's subject to the possessiveness of vision, but that also... Um, uh, absolutely blocks this kind of um, recognition parity of self-other relations that I saw operative in other things that had inspired me to date. So essentially kind of what I was moving towards was what became the very short book, um, Selfless Cinema. Um, Sorry, say again. Selfless cinema. Selfless my, cinema. Uh, question mark. Question mark. Because <laughs> there yeah, had to be that there as to whether there ever could be such a um, thing as selfless cinema in the Levinasian sense um, and um, if so what it might look like yes. um, but it was um, something that I think I did answer in the affirmative in the end um, and saw that at work in the various um, documentaries that I analysed within that text um, so that book was um, basically the second book um, and um, it was a very reduced version of what I'd originally planned to yeah. do but for good reason I'm glad I did go down the filmic route. It was also one that paved the way towards the move to Kings because I was looking to go 
into writing on film really exclusively in theory. And um, who published this one? That was Legenda, um, and that was a, a publishing um, a series. It was French research monographs in... Um, uh, French studies, um, and that responded to the same cultural moment that, or historical moment that um, Peter Collier had identified, and that the Modern French Identities series that Peter Lang had uh, uh, brought to the fore. Um, in that Malcolm Bowie and various scholars within French studies had set up this series, basically. So I put a. a and when did that come out? That came out in 2006. Um, it was slightly delayed um, through various changes in the editorship at. Uh, Agenda, but um, that came out. It's a brief book. It was fifty thousand words, I think. Um, it didn't have translations of the French quotations, so it was very much written for a reduced audience. Um, and uh, but but it's a book I loved writing. It was um, very. Um, self-contains the wrong word but it just just felt as if it was uh, you sound happier talking about it than your first yeah i guess i was in the sense that um it felt like the well, it was a book that i conceived as a book rather than a thesis that i was transforming into a book and although i was pleased with both there was the sense that um yeah, I don't know. It was the first book as a book, I guess, rather than a thesis that became a book. So I guess that's the the, the kind of um, uh, positive feeling I have towards it. But yeah, I was um, positive about the, the first uh, book as well. But I think um, there was also I felt as if I'd, I'd worked that through absolutely and utterly and thoroughly as far as I could when I completed right. that first book. Whereas. Selfless cinema was an opening uh, to something that I wanted to pursue. And although the queer theory, the feminist theory, and the deconstruction, etc., all that line of thinking absolutely informs what I do now, um, it wasn't something that I wanted to carry on working with in a scholarly sense. It's an embedded background to how you see the world. How I think, but yeah. But you've made your point on it, at least for now. Exactly, absolutely. Um, so we've got a, just a, a couple of minutes left. I wondered if you could bring us up to date, as it were. Yeah, sure. Um, and while very I quick, that, I might ask. Well, I mean, this can cut into this thing we added to our two minutes. I want to make sure that just to, I'm worried that they might close the kitchen at okay. nine. Yeah, sure. So I just wanted to check that we can still order some food. You know what yeah. I mean? So I'm yeah. gonna, while you talk, I'm going to be listening as our, our as is our wrapped audience. But I'm also going to be looking for somebody with a menu and an apron. Okay. Excellent. Well, I have a question. What time is the kitchen, please? Ten. Okay. So we'd like to order some food in a few minutes. Better. Great. We've got plenty of time. Let's go. No, it's fine. The um. Okay. Uh, I can do this very quickly. No, um, no, no. no the, sorry. Don't, uh, don't let me rush you. No. My my third book um was a book on Chris Marker, and he was one of the filmmakers who I wrote on in Selfless Just Cinema. Just died. I, I know. I know. I know. I know. So, um, but I wrote. A book for the Manchester University Press um, French um, film director series um, on his work, um, and it was an introduction to his films. Um, and um, yeah, a really good um, self-contained book to write, um, and involved going to the French archives to be able to source a lot of the films that um, uh, weren't available and aren't still aren't available commercially. So um, uh, a really good exercise in delving into the archives to be able to write um, an introduction to his work. Um, and Did you that, cry when he died? So, 
I was moved. I didn't cry actually. No, I was I was connected to his work, um, but um, I'm kind of firm believer in the death of the author. Um, I guess so. Just the sense that um, one you you study things separately from the the lives of those who write them and the, or film them, and um, I I think the the kind of separation there was not. I didn't have any contact with him through interviews and therefore I hear what you're saying, but you know, different. Um, a guy but I, know, I was moved by him, a guy arrived, by his death. The yes. guy who arrived in Paris to study with Roland Barthes and four days after he arrived, Barthes was hit by the van in the street and died. So that was a real death of the earth. Oh yeah, no, you know oh, no I mean? totally. No, but what I meant by that is the fact that um, only works take on a life of their own and although the biographical uh, the sort of connection is, is important. There's a sense in which his work has always lived without him, and, and I, I guess I, I uh, kind of yeah. I mean, there is something which I mean, I, I would have felt it more keenly, I think, if I'd been working on his work when he died. I think that is a, a must be a very strange thing to experience, but. I, I wasn't, and it happened subsequently. But um, but yeah, I was. I mean, I think it's a, a massive loss, and especially because, like so many others, like Alain René of his generation, like uh, Agnès Varda, they're still producing, they're still doing things. Incredible. So they're working right yeah. up until the moment of, of their death. And he was he had so much more to do to give, and it's awful to think of these people stopping, as it was for you know he with Derrida when he died. But, um, but I think um, I, yeah, I'd so absolutely. Absolutely, um, it's a huge loss, but the legacy that he leaves is a great one. I yeah, hope. So, sure. No, and of course he. Everything you say is right. And the, so the book came out with Manchester University Press. When did that appear? In 2008. My God, so this is three um, books in eight years. You're, you're not as productive as some. Amazing. So what? So that happens, yeah. and then. What after that? Where have you gone? Since? And then, I mean, you've been doing these incredible administrative tasks as well as changing universities. Yeah, but with the um, selfless cinema and with the Chris Marker book, they were both projects that I'd conceived while I was in Cambridge. So even though I left Cambridge in 2004, uh, the kind of conclusion of my research thinking didn't happen until 2008 with the publication of um, the Marker book. But um, uh, in the meantime, I've been teaching film theory um, and had taken on David Roderick's modules courses. Um, at King's? Yeah, at King's. Um, classical film theory, modern film theory, Soviet film theory, contemporary film theory, as he'd set up the divisions at the time. Um, and I was also um, on the Levinas notes as well, really interested in filmmakers who'd been inspired by Levinas's work, and the Dardenne brothers were figures who'd been inspired by his work and were trying to articulate a Levinasian perspective in their films. Um, so I, the first thing I did post-Marco, um, or simultaneous to the release of the Marco book, actually, once I finished the manuscript, was to work on the Dardenne brothers, to work on filmmakers who were actually inspired by the philosopher who had inspired me in self the cinema um, and to do work on their work um, and 
out of that came the fact that they were actually talking at a certain moment about how they perceived Levinas's conception of the soul um, within their work and that kind of sparked something off in my mind and also reminded me that in so many of the texts that I was reading to be able to teach classical film theory there was an abundance of reference to the term itself to the concept itself and so that was the kind of starting point for thinking about a book manuscript that I've just finished um, that will be published with Paul Graves shortly and it, it will be entitled the, or that is entitled The Soul of Film Theory Theory. Um, and it traces the history of the concept of the soul from classical film theory right the way through to um, the present, to contemporary film theory, um, to its kind of demise um, in the 50s, 60s, um, as we move out of phenomenology into structuralism, that moment that we started with earlier. Um, and um, it really is tracing the, uh, the, the continuing presence, more intermittent today, of a concept that was once prevalent in so many different theoretical con contexts um, and it, it looks at that concept in relation to concepts of the film mind and film's body which uh, Sobchak and Frampton um, have coined most recently um, and um, yeah it's an effectively a revisiting of the history of film theory through certain key moments that talk about soul prominently or that still have a relation to that through to today so um, so research bound up with teaching inspired by teaching in this particular instance um, and um, takes us up to the present place. Wow, that's exciting. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. When this book comes out, I hope you'll come back to the pod and grace us again with your presence. Will I you will. do that? Yes, yeah, definitely. Fantastic. Thank you.